Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Art Detective with me, Dr. Yanina Ramirez. I'm an Oxford art historian, a broadcaster and a writer. And I'm also your chief investigator of images. I am joined today by Kate Wiles, who is senior editor of History Today and a researcher on scribes and manuscripts. Today, I am extremely excited. We are in a very funky cafe in Soho. So if you can hear the uh, the sounds of some uh, reggae music coming over the sound system, just uh, try and listen to our voices instead. But I'm doubly excited because this is my passion area, Anglo-Saxon manuscripts. And you and I have been chuckling away about a new book that you're reviewing, which tells us that all Anglo-Saxon manuscripts are indeed fakes. Yep. But... Uh, <laughs> We don't think that is the case, do we, Kate? I'm quite convinced that they're real because I've seen and handled many of them mm-hmm. and I'm pretty sure they're, they're, they're there. <laughs> so tell me a bit about your research area because it fascinates me. Uh, so I work on Anglo-Saxon charters, which are small brown legal documents from the period about 500, well, they start about 700 to 1066 and they're recording transactions of land. So um, someone, the king or the church, will give or buy land to someone else and they make a record of that. And I look at how the scribes write that down, um, what language they're using, because this is where you start to get the first instances of English being written down in what would otherwise be a Latin context. So it's very exciting to see how they're starting to use their own language and kind of seeing it slowly creep in and take on Latin which is quite nice well that's it the linguistic transformation is absolutely Mm. fascinating my my background was in literature originally and then got into the art history later on but the the idea that the vernacular English the the language that was spoken Mm. and the relationship there is with this written language of the church which is Latin is absolutely fascinating and the the Anglo-Saxons do something quite unique with the two don't they yeah I mean um, the fact that they even start writing in their own language mm. is pretty unique um, on the continent you see only the tiniest bits of it for a very long time after and really England for some reason is this outpost in mm. Europe just doing its own thing do you think it's because of Gregory the Great when he because we've got this mixed account haven't we in Bede yeah. that when he sends over the missions and St Augustine he he said in one account it does say you know get rid of all the the heathen practices be, yeah. be very strong yeah. but in another he does say don't actually destroy the temples and the places that people are used to going to just remove the idols from them and i wonder if that creates this sort of sense of adaptation rather than 
destruction that comes in with Christianity. I mean, there's a lot of continuity that um, you do see pagan practices just being absorbed, not replaced. Yeah. Um, I can't comment on the continent, I'm afraid. I don't know enough about it. But I, I think to a certain extent that happens on the continent as well, that that's the best way to get people to adopt Christianity yeah. is to map it onto what they already know and make it acceptable. You know, it's why we have Christmas when we have it and Easter when we have it. And exactly. it's, you know, it's a smooth transition. So, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't know how wildly different England is in that respect but then the English doesn't start coming in for a couple of hundred years mm-hmm. after St Augustine converts the thousands in Kent um, so I think it's just their own innovation that you know there's various influences that go on Alfred the Great of course is hugely huge important. proponent of the, their own language um, starts translating loads of things into English which is a really novel enterprise no one else has done that yeah um and and he writes it. his own account. Uh, he translates texts from Latin into English. Yeah. And then he writes this beautiful personal account, doesn't he, at the beginning of Gregory's Pastoral Care, where he says, you know, these are the books most needful for all men to yes. know. We have to save it and put it in our own tongue. I mean, he's really invested in it, and he realises that the masses don't speak Latin, and he wants the Bible and the biblical texts to be understood by the people to make them better Christians. Because yeah. if they're Latin, then it's closed off. You know, you can see the beautiful manuscripts, you can see the images, but you go and listen to a sermon, you have no idea what's happening. Yeah. So um, putting it into the your own language is a huge step. Um, And it's something that really, I mean, it's very timely at the moment with the um, celebrations of Luther and the Mm. 95 Theses because that is all about putting the scriptural text into the language that people understand and speak. But the Anglo-Saxons are doing it hundreds of years earlier. They're awesome. I know. (laughs) Awesome. Love them. We have raced ahead somewhat because this is an art detective podcast and we have an artwork that we're absolutely ready to salivate over. I mentioned earlier that charters are drab and brown and small. They're very small. They're, you know, they range from six inches by an inch and a half to maybe 20 inches or something. And they're brown. There's nothing on them. And I've got one. Yeah. And it's illuminated. It's amazing. It's, it's, a, it's actually got gold on it. Well, this is where I get excited, because you do all the text. Yeah. In fact, just before we say what we're looking at, I am fascinated to discover that you are the linguistic <laughs> consultant on the TV series The Vikings. I am, yes. <laughs> so cool. Thank you. So you have to, you, you all get all the old English run by you, and yep. help out with all the old Norse. and They send me lines of dialogue, and I translate it. I have tried to put in lines from Monty Python, but... <laughs> just slide them yeah, in. Yeah, my hovercraft is full of eels, but I don't think they used it. <laughs> I don't know if anyone would know if they did. Uh, but no, that's... I can... Min is alles fun, is... My floaty boat is full of eels. My floaty boat, that... Thank you. Thank you. That is absolutely amazing. So, no, I'm hugely yeah. impressed by that. So, yeah, the language in yeah. this is fascinating to you. Yes. The art in yes. this is fascinating to me. Yes. We are looking at a manuscript that is called the Codex Aureus, and it's now in Stockholm, mm-hmm. um, but it's an Anglo-Saxon manuscript. Yes. Probably made in and around Kent, isn't it, in the mid-8th mm, century? Something like that, yeah. We can't pin it down exactly. Yeah. In the wonderful world of um, early medieval art history, mm-hmm. we don't have dates. We have relationships relationships between manuscripts so one is later or earlier than the other so we know roughly the school that this is coming out of it's coming out of that that sort of Southumbrian school we can recognise similarities with other things that were produced at that time. Charters are particularly useful. I'm going to bang your charter You're going to insist on these charters, They have you? dates on them. <laughs> yes, so, indeed. <laughs> so if you've got a charter with a date and you can match the scribe to something else similar, 
that's how you can date a bigger manuscript. Excellent. Well, you are helping me on that yeah. front. Um, from an historical point of view, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because like many of the manuscripts I'm slightly over the top in love with, like the Lindspun Gospels, yes. like the, um, the Litchfield Gospels, there's a blending of influences and cultures that's coming through in this manuscript, isn't there? Yeah. What do we see? So, it's got some Carolingian stuff going on. It's very continental in its style. Um, it's kind of Italian influences um, because the scribes are they're kind of enmeshed in this global world. You know, they're getting influences from all over the world. They're copying. So this is, we mentioned St. Augustine earlier. The images in this manuscript are copied from the Gospels of St. Augustine that mm. were sent over by Gregory the Great. So you've already got this link to Gregory's work. Um, you've got English scribes and illuminators putting their own spot style on it, picking up influences from kind of the Roman influence to make it look important. So the script they use throughout is uncial, which is, you know, gives it authority. It's a biblical text. So well, I, I always try and do this with my students. What the di- what's the difference between uncial, majuscule, minuscule? Uncial is capital letters, really, yeah. isn't it? And it takes longer to write than um, something like minuscule, which is joined up, yeah. because you have to separate each letter, and it looks very grand. And it's the sort of script that's used on Roman inscriptions isn't it's it it's straight lots of straight lines yeah. it's very dramatic and bold and it kind of to a, a contemporary reader it just screams authority it yeah. goes this is from the pope you know this yeah. is big serious stuff you and want it's to coming out of the roman empire as well yeah, yeah. you've got that idea of kind of triumphal arches with big unseal mm. inscriptions carved on them and you see it directly on the images themselves on the manuscript that they're putting the arches right onto the page yeah. the contents page of these manuscripts has got literal columns actual and columns exactly I mean even in this evangelist yeah, yeah. portrait of, of the evangelist Matthew that we're looking at you've got yeah the architectural framing yeah. is is all charming back to a Roman tradition as yeah. to the classical tradition I mean it's it is fascinating the way that um, they have obviously been copying things that have come directly yes. from the continent but they've added their own insular flavour haven't they oh I love it when they do that yeah <laughs> me too who needs to do a boring plain copy when you can bring exactly. a bit of anglo just for the, the listeners to give a bit of context on the, on the date that this is happening so that this manuscript is being made mid 8th century mm-hmm. in, in and around Kent we are talking very much a Christian setting aren't yes. we but the world has changed because um, up until 597 that magic date yep. <laughs> where everybody woke up and realised they were in fact Christian Everyone overnight. They're just like, Odin was wrong. Yeah. Jesus is right. They just realised. It's a miracle. I know. Oh. <laughs> Augustine was he was great. He was so he did good work. <laughs> but he so this idea that the heart the coming of Christianity. Yes. Uh, it certainly had a massive and profound and quite immediate effect in the South, didn't it? But it was blending into a culture that was already many hundreds of years old, which was an Anglo-Saxon, Germanic, pagan, warrior mm. culture uh, that differed in many ways from continental Christian Europe, didn't it? Yeah, it was, they're very much forging their own identity. They start referring to themselves as the English. They've, mm. Even though England is made up of separate kingdoms and each of those has its own identity, they're very aware that they're a separate thing. Mm. 
and that they're at the outer limits of the Christian Empire when it does arrive. You know, they're very aware that they're a little outpost. Um, it's yeah. amazing in the Codex Amiatine. It's my favourite. Just going to mention that. Uh, the, uh, yeah, the, the single, uh, oldest surviving single pandect copy of the yeah. Vulgate Bible anywhere in the world. And it was made at Bede's Monastery up in Willow just outside Newcastle. That is a claim to fame, Newcastle. It's amazing. And I have to give my favourite fact. This is from Christopher Hamill's um, Meetings of the Remarkable Manuscripts, which is my favourite book ever. Just ever made. I I love it. But he says, he describes the weight of this manuscript because it's enormous. It's 75 pounds. Well, how does he give it? Because the traditional one is... So the Lindisfarne Gospels, 20 pounds, are the weight of an adult badger. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) The Codex Amiatinus, 75 pounds. Rupert Bruce Mitford describes it as the weight of a fully grown female Great Dane. Absolutely. Christopher de Hamel weighs in and said, or a 12 to 13 year old boy. I have been using the Great Dane in all my lectures. Fully grown female. Fully grown female. It has to be female. Because if it was a male, it would be ever so slightly too too heavy. (laughs) That is incredible. 12 to 13 year old boy. It's quite precise. But no, I mean, the Codex Amiatinus is an extraordinary manuscript. It takes two people to lift it. I mean, I've seen the facsimile. I've never seen the original, despite having researched it. The one you've seen the facsimile in Wimmer's Jarrett. Yeah. And handled it. It's so huge. It's huge. so huge. But the the inscription in that actually says, you know, we are from the edges yeah. of yeah. the world. We are from the ends of the known world. So they knew that they were an outpost. They yeah. knew that these newly converted... They knew they were. They had been pagan. That's the other thing. They, they held to it up. still. Yeah. And yeah. they kept... I mean, if you look at the place names, for example, oh, gosh, yeah. um, place names often maintain, you know, because you can't just rename... You do sometimes rename a place, but it often have the memory of what was there before, and you get an awful lot of kind of place names that have Thor in them, or Woden, or Heog, which is a pagan temple. Yeah, and we've so got Woden's Danu near us, which is Woden's Valley, which yeah, I love, yes. Woden's Danu. Yeah. I like Pepper Harrow, which is the Piper's um, temple or yeah. shrine, but we don't know what the Piper was, but it was something something pagan. But no, place names are great. Names yes. of the week, of course, yes. the days of the week, exactly. all going back yeah. to the pagan gods. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also these little echoes that we get coming through in, in Bede and in other texts that sort of hint at you earlier You get practices. genealogies as well. Yes. Where very often a king will to show his authority and he's descended from Jesus, but then it goes back to Woden. Absolutely. So they're, they're kind of merging the two together in their very own um, kind of unique unique blend of religion that works for them. But that's what I definitely think we have coming through in the Codex Aureus in terms of blending. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, this is fully paid up Christian text. This is the text of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And um, it's huge. I think there's 197 folios. Goodness. I think there's 197 (laughs) folios. And what I absolutely adore about this and what tells you how expensive and incredibly important it was is that it's dipped. half Half the folios a dipped purple dye which is only for imperial manuscripts isn't it and then it starts to be used for some royal ones but it's so rare so rare so what I love as well is because it alternates I know that idea and then they change colour of ink so on the purple they write in gold it's just phenomenal it's the most beautiful thing it is astonishing so look at us we're getting a bit giddy over the codex but um, it's also the oldest surviving example of the use of gold leaf in an initial isn't it yep which is a big innovation because yeah. we talk about um, these really highly decorated gospel books and there's an awful lot coming out of uh, the British Isles and Ireland 
at that time you know, the look of Kells for example is phenomenal but it's not got gold on it no it? it's not yeah. um, pretty sure it hasn't well the book of Kells is later but, than this anyway yeah. so we can but cover ourselves you know the Lindisfarne Gospels the Gospels of Augustine there's no gold we refer to them as you know highly decorated but this is the first time you get one illuminated yeah and, and that's the word isn't it illuminare and, and, yeah, it's yeah. actually coming from the idea the light of the light shining. bringing out yeah. from the gold Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Yeah, this one is is called Codex Aureus because that is the word for gold. It literally means the gold book, doesn't it? And it is a big feature. Yeah. I mean, just on this spread that we've got here, you can see with, it's, you know, quite low res, but you can just see the gold shining off it. Totally. And, you know, opening with the massive the XP, the Cairo, which means Christ, it's starting with a splash and it's really giving all the authority they can to this text. Yeah. And this is the, so this is the opening to Matthew's Gospel, which is the first, traditionally the first in, yeah. in the New Testament. And it starts with the um, genealogy of Christ, doesn't it? Yeah. So it's opening up with, um, as you say, Cairo for Christus, and then going into uh, to tell about his, his birth, his life, his ancestors. Yeah. But the Cairo, stylistically, yeah. this is something quite extraordinary, isn't it? Because we don't see this in continental manuscripts, do we? You have to tell me about this. Well, I don't know about the art side of it as much. We don't. It we looks don't. very familiar to me, because this is what I... <laughs> yeah, because you do <laughs> insular manuscripts, yeah. yeah. Insular, by the way, is for the British Isles. It's, yep. It shows this blending of Irish Celtic influence with... Uh, it's Anglo-Saxon Germanic style, but this is this is quite extraordinary because while on the left you've got this image of the evangelist seated in this architecture, which does look quite classical and it looks quite Carolingian actually. It's quite, although they have um, they have abstracted slightly on the facial features, which is a good old Anglo-Saxon <laughs> trick. But the if you go over to the initial, 
here you've got all these amazing quills and spirals mm. which are coming straight out of Celtic art. I was going to say, that to me looks just like the Cairo page of the Book of Kells. Exactly. And and this is a tradition that goes way back. You can trace it back through the, to the Bronze Age and beyond where Celts use uh, these triskels, these horses, yeah. these spirals, these trumpets uh, on their art. And it's for me, I love it because it's always about pushing against the boundaries. It's this idea of, sort of the freedom of the space. But then at the end of the X, you've got these two animal heads. Oh, yeah. Can you see that? And that's very Anglo-Saxon because the Anglo-Saxons love their zoomorphs. They love their beasts. So this is kind of connected to our uh, Viking art that is really keen on its... Exactly. Exactly. So they're already just in that one little section there. They seem to be combining the influence of Roman Christianity, the influence of Ireland and Celtic Christianity, and then this legacy of animal zoomorphic art that comes through from hundreds of years of of warrior culture of the Anglo-Saxons. Brilliant. (laughs) So that's the art. Yeah. I mean, I can talk about the XP if you like. Uh, Yeah, 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 absolutely. Go ahead. We could do this weird blend of linguistics and art history. Please, yeah. So the XP (laughs) is something uh, that goes back to the very earliest days of Christianity. Um, XP are the first two letters of the word Christ if they're written in the Greek alphabet. Um, And, you know, it carries on to spell the rest of Christus. The Emperor Constantine in... When was he? 312. 3rd, 4th century. Yeah, 4th century. Went into battle under a banner with XP written on it. One decided it was his lucky charm and that kind of fixed the XP as a symbol particularly in again a non-literate world you can see the symbol you know that that's Christ on this page it's the biggest bit so someone looking at it who doesn't read Latin and I mean even if you do read Latin the rest of the page is quite hard to read the symbol becomes more potent than the word Christ itself absolutely we have then continued the X and that's why we have Xmas instead of Christmas ah. <laughs> and of course you know that relationship between X and the crucifix as well yes. symbols yeah. You know, they, this is my, my other passion area, yeah. how, how powerful just that opening symbol can be. I also get very excited about the relationship you see in Anglo-Saxon manuscripts between text and image, because what's so interesting is that here you've got the evangelist page. In things like Learn to Find Gospels, you've also got carpet pages yes. before that. But the way that the image prepares you for the text, and then you come through image, through this decoration into words it's like the the visual is the preparatory material for these sacred texts that's coming and that's where you've got clues like the evangelist with the, his symbol the man exactly uh, and so that tells you again even if you don't know what the words say you've got all of the visual information so you can look at it and know what you've got exactly and I think that also feeds into something that, that I'm sure you're interested in as much as I am which is this idea of oral recitation the idea mm. that a lot of things are spoken out loud and books like this would have been read from yeah. and used as teaching aids but also you know they're to be to be kind of public items aren't they I mean everything about them is built for being read aloud the punctuation the word spacing the line spacing everything is there to tell you when to take a breath yeah. um, and they were they were kind of put out on public display and someone would read from them you very rarely get anything that you can really say was meant to be read internally and in fact I can't remember what the reference is there's someone goes to visit someone and he's 
reading silently and that's noteworthy yes. enough to write down. Do you know one of the weirdest things that we, again, I'm always fascinated by the way that we look back from a modern perspective onto the medieval mm. and our notions of reading and of books and what they actually yeah. function as are completely formed from our modern point of view. It, the, one of the earliest examples of a person quietly reading by themselves in their room silently is in the Henry VIII's Psalter where he sat with his own book in yeah. his own bedroom reading. And it's a private and it's thing. A private thing, but almost all books yeah. really were read. Even if a person was by themselves, they would probably read yes. out loud. Um, and we sort of forget about that, don't we? I think it's um, quite in, well, particularly you get it with um, the English, is that the spellings themselves reflect the pronunciation. You can't, if you're reading Old English, you can't escape that it is an oral thing. It's directly reflecting the written, the spoken language, and it's. I mean, it's a mystery exactly how the, how the spellings worked. I still don't understand it after years and years. Um, and Latin is a different thing again, and that's another part of the difference between Latin and English is that Latin was fixed spelling and artificial and written down. Um, and was a very different beast from English. Well, English, as it continues to do, transforms. Yeah. And it transforms very rapidly. Yeah. So even in the Anglo-Saxon period, you've got dialects from all over different places, yeah. and then you've got texts written at different times. Yeah. And sometimes they can be completely impossible to make sense. And of. then you've got a scribe who may have moved. Yeah. And so they were trained in the south, but they're writing in the north, and they're copying a text from the east. And you get all of those influences, and it's it's been of my life. Brilliant. It's brilliant. So, Lisa, tell me yes. about the text that is surrounded this gorgeous, beautiful oh. set of, inscri- of, of, of uh, illuminated words. What is going on with this little scribbly so, stuff that looks very ugly? I <laughs> mean, rude. So the thing about manuscript pages, and I can't remember who said this. I read it years and years ago that someone said a manuscript page is not like a modern book. It's more like a Wikipedia page, that it's not a finished thing. We print a book it's published you don't touch it you know people who write in the margins of their books are frowned upon I do it always have I mean I do too but only my own books but these you know true (laughs) but a manuscript page once it's written one scribe will write it someone else will come along and edit it and correct it someone else will if it's Latin someone else might come along and write Old English between the lines as in the Lindisfarne Gospels which has one of the earliest surviving transliteral versions of the Bible into English and it's great I love it because even the most obvious words they've just put a little note next to it going this is book yeah exactly. um, book book <laughs> oh thanks um, but that's you know to help readers access and then as um, the centuries go on more and more people add layers and layers of additions and so what you end up with is this amalgamation of things so on the page that I brought today um the Codex Aureus at some point was stolen by the Vikings from wherever it was being held and um, then afterwards Elderman Alfred who was the um, kind of the local ruler of Surrey under the king ransomed it back with his wife in pure gold from the Vikings and donated it to Canterbury in exchange for the community at Canterbury praying for his and his wife's and his daughter's souls for as long as baptism shall last on this land and please don't take the book away from Canterbury for as long as there is Christianity on in England <laughs> amazingly um, it ends up in Sweden yeah, in the 1600s I know. So, sorry Alfred <laughs> yeah. but it kind of worked out um, <laughs> I'm sure his soul's fine um, I, I, so, this is fascinating this inscription I yeah. use this example when I talk about the Vikings and what they get up to yeah. because this is just gold dust of evidence oh, isn't it this inscription brilliant we know um, we can date it quite reasonably to around 871 or 2 because we know kind of what the Vikings were doing in Surrey at this time we know about 
about Alfred and his wife because they wrote a really big will um, where he talks about you know what he wants all his property to go to his wife mostly after he's died um, and it's in English going back to the language thing so in a culture that is still predominantly Latin mm. this is written in English and charters are still mostly Latin but from about 845 English starts creeping in and that's good that's Alfred a lot of that as well isn't there there's it's a, a whole, lot that comes with Alfred this is what this. my research is on at the moment is trying to work out exactly how and why they start using English because it's such a rebellious thing particularly in a legal text well I think it's rebellious but I think it's also out of necessity I mean Alfred gives us one reason doesn't he he says that yes. you know the Vikings actually did a number on <laughs> the monasteries of England. And monasteries, I mean, this is something, again, that I think we we have these modern words for things that we, we associate a monastery with a nice quiet place with little monks yeah. and herb gardens. But actually a monastery was everything. It was education systems, yep. it was hospitals, yep. it was legal systems, it was publishing houses, all melded into these powerhouses. We've got records of them fighting with swords against exactly. the Vikings. So, you know, they weren't sitting but, there in their little cloisters not moving. No, exactly. When you wipe those Oh, and you're wiping out the roots of all that Latin education and all that, that research mm. and, and learning. And in Canterbury that we're looking at at the moment, you see a real deterioration in the scribal quality. Mm. I mean, not to be mean, but some of the charters from Alfred's period, King Alfred's period, look like a child wrote them. Absolutely. Bless them. Yeah. And the Latin is incomprehensible. Like, we have trouble translating them. So that, that again, might be a reason why this scribe, who has a beautiful hand, beautiful handwriting, so clearly very well trained, but maybe doesn't have the Latin anymore. Yeah, yeah. The, the education's been disrupted because of this period of constant raiding. And I think this is the other reason that this manuscript excites me so much. So it's called the Codex Aureus. It's covered in gold. It's got the earliest example of golden initials. It's ransom is paid in pure gold, as the inscription yeah. says. But what it also tells me about is this story of Viking attacks on monasteries, because it, it brings to light uh, this old cliche that the Vikings were just raiders and, and that they just barbarically, indiscriminately smashed everybody. But the problem with monasteries was they were ripe picking, weren't they? Because they were often on rivers or on, on the edge of, um, yeah. of the coast. Which they need the resources to they, yeah. be such a big enterprise. Exactly, so they're importing ivory and vellum. And mm. But that means that Viking ships can just come on up. Up to the doorstep. Up to the doorstep <laughs> on the tide. Yeah. Grab the unprotected gold and loot that's yep. in those Because places. the monasteries had so much wealth in there, so all the beautiful things. And also they were, they were used as um, safe houses mm. or royal treasures because no Anglo-Saxon would attack a monastery so the Vikings could just grab all this wealth and get out on the tide again Yeah. and and this book was taken ransom now that's what I find so fascinating because these are the Vikings are not using manuscripts but they are recognising the value that the Anglo-Saxons place on the manuscripts also the I mean the cover of it which we don't have anymore we've got a few covers um, surviving that might look like the one that was on the Codex Aureus but they are gold and covered in gemstones I mean it, you don't need to look inside to know that this is a really expensive item and it's there's a good chance that the Vikings would have kept the cover that's really what they were interested in they didn't care about the insides which is why Alfred was then able to negotiate it back you're absolutely right and even in the uh, in the dedicatory uh, inscription in the Codex Aureus mm. it says that there was a goldsmith who worked on 
the book and, and the cover because you're, you know the, we, we do find these fragments don't we that look like they've just been prized yes. off the front so you had this vision of, of Vikings who are not using manuscripts not using books in that way running in finding the girl peeling it off and chucking the book off the manuscript yeah. away and then all these monks running back with their books going hey, I've got it I've got it and they get wise to this yeah. and they think why are they so happy that, that they've still got those What's square things can I, can I barter this can for I have, money can I get some money out of this situation oh. and they do and that's the thing so they can they can ransom it back and then bless Alfred comes along with all of his gold and really begs for it and gives them it says in the text pure gold I mean he he really wants this yeah absolutely and you had some things about the female influence mm. in this as well didn't you so what's really striking about this is one it's in English two Alfred's wife, Werberg, is really prominent in it. The text refers to we too. You know, they're a couple. They're doing this together. It's not just Alfred. And then their daughter is also mentioned. Um, And one of the ideas is maybe it's written in English so that she can read it and their daughter can read it, uh, you know, once Alfred's gone or, you know, someone can read it out to them and they will understand that their dedication is on this unbelievably beautiful thing. And again, I like the kind of the ego that they've put it on <laughs> really early in the manuscript on the splashiest page they can find. Exactly. You know, this is, we we this. did this, yeah. we did this, um, and this is going to do their souls a lot of good. Um, so one of the theories is perhaps it was in English because um, perhaps Werberg herself wrote it. If it was in their possession once they got it back from the Vikings, we know that Viking, um, Anglo-Saxon women were often literate in Old English and they taught their children to read in English. So there's a, the famous story of King Alfred and his mother saying, if you can learn these English poems, I will give you this book. And he went away and did it. It might not be true, but the fact that his mother is engaged in the process of learning English suggests you know, that it could be the case here. Um, and so I love the idea. I don't know. This is uh, from Nicholas Brooks and Susan Kelly, and it's a lovely idea, but we've got no evidence for it. But I would love it to be true that she sat down and wrote it and kind of enshrined her family in this document. It would be wonderful. Well, I do like that idea, and I don't think it's too far-fetched when we even think down to modern-day family Bibles where you have hmm. different records made in the in the front covers and yeah. different births, deaths, marriages and events all recorded. It makes good sense to suggest yeah. that this could be by somebody involved with the retrieval of this manuscript, particularly given the fact that, that this is a time of change within Anglo-Saxon scriptoria mm. and scribal activities. So why not an educated noblewoman doing exactly. this? Um, and at a time perhaps when the scribes have not got time to be doing this stuff and their education is waning, she was perhaps educated earlier in her life because the handwriting is similar to scribes who worked quite a bit earlier. So it's either someone who was trained by a very old scribe or someone who is very old themselves writing it. So she learned to write in her childhood Gosh. then later in life so it's a possibility well this is the weird and wonderful world of paleography and handwriting detective work and manuscript Mm. studies I mean this has been absolutely fascinating I have so loved talking to you and I could talk to you about manuscripts till the cows come home it's a huge passion project for both of us isn't it but you've you've really brought it to life for me and made it really really exciting thanks so much Kate you're very Um, welcome you're on Twitter aren't you I am Um, Kate Mund it doesn't mean anything Kate Mund (laughs) Kate Mund yeah excellent and I'm also on Twitter I'm Dr Yanina Ramirez Uh, if you've enjoyed this podcast why not subscribe you can go to historyhit.com 
slash art detective. And a, another reminder that History Hit are doing amazing and great things at the moment. History Hit TV is going to be launching soon, thanks to the crowdfunder work that everybody's been so generous in contributing to. So do go to historyhit.tv to find out more. Thanks, everybody. I'll be back soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.